0: How many of you have gotten into watching the, the show, This Is Us? How have you gotten into it? What? A few of us? Yeah, okay. So most of us. So here it is. If, uh, if you've been watching for a while now, maybe from the beginning, or you've just been binging along the way, I haven't really addressed the show much yet in this series because the show hasn't had a ton to do with what we're talking about. As I was thinking about the passage I'm going to be teaching today, I could not help but reflect on the show and specifically one character. And so... If you're not caught up, I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I don't want to ruin it for you, but the dad dies. Okay? All right? And so, and and the remarkable thing about this show is that I can tell you that, and it still takes nothing away from the show itself. Jack Pearson is this character that has been written uh, so beautifully that he impacts people that he's not even met. Even in the afterlife, he's still having an impact on others. How many of you have ever met someone like that? You met someone that just had such a deep and impactful, uh, pronounced impact on you that it changed the way you thought about things, it changed the way you acted, it changed the way you did certain things. They just had an impact. How many of you have also had that same kind of impact on others? I want to explain that to you. Um, There's a couple scenes that if I give them to you, they're not going to ruin the show. So here it is. Um, Rebecca, his wife. My wife actually has a t-shirt now that says, loves me like Jack loves Rebecca. Okay? And so, like, when we're singing how he loves, I'm like, wait, who's she singing about, Jesus or Jack? You know, it's like, um, Rebecca, his wife, was so deeply impacted by Jack that even in his death, he dies on Super Bowl Sunday, that she will take all their favorite snacks and even though she's remarried, she'll take all their favorite snacks, sit down by herself, she watches with no one else as if she's watching the Super Bowl with her husband, Jack. Kevin, their son, who pities Jack, pities his father for being an alcoholic and having to go to AA when he's a teenager, later in life in his 30s, battles the same bout with alcoholism. Randall, his other son, his adopted son, the brilliant son, who battles anxiety, is having a panic attack as an adult, and he remembers, he flashes back to a time when he was a kid, and there was, he needed calming, and there was only one person who could calm him, and that was, that was Jack, it was his dad. And so he remembers what his dad taught him, and he calms himself, and, and he, he, he exercises that in such a way that it becomes a practice in his life to where he continues even as an adult. But the most beautiful picture for me is he and his daughter. Now, Kate is one who battles image, like many girls do, and, and she battles obesity her entire life, but she loves to sing. And there's this scene where she is in her room recording herself singing and doesn't know it, but Jack has cracked the door and he's recording her singing. He's filming her. And at first she's angry, she's mad. She responds with this, this anxiety because she doesn't want to see herself out of her own self-consciousness on film. She doesn't want to see that. But later on she goes back and she watches the film, sees what her dad saw, watches his smile of pride over her in the reflection of the video. And she goes to him and she apologizes. She says, Daddy, please don't ever stop trying to get me to see myself the way that you see me. It's a beautiful picture. And it's what reminded me of the text that I wanted to teach today as we look at what it means to have an impact on others. Past couple weeks, we've looked at loving God with our all. Last week we said, God said, or Jesus said, the second greatest commandment is just as important as the first and that is we are to love as God intended. And now... Jesus gives a charge to disciples in the resurrection after reappearing to them, they're dumbfounded, they're not sure if it's him. Once they recognize it him, it's him, he looks at them, and he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That you now go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what I have taught you. To love with all and to love others as intended. So go and make disciples, go make an impact. And so today, I want to look at what it looks like to recognize Jack Pearson uh, OG, okay? Like, I want to see the OG Jack Pearson, the one that was flawless. I want to see what Jesus looks like when he impacts others that were otherwise cast out by their society, what it looked like for him to come in and have an effect uh, with his love and his value in the way that he saw people who had been rejected by everyone else around them. And that, that same kind of love, the way he saw them, that impact would affect one life to multiple lives, to cities, to borders, extended beyond barriers, racial tensions, ethnicities, centuries, and even continue to impact us here in Nashville today. And that passage is found in John 4. And so if you have your Bible, you can flip there with me. I want to read just a few verses. i want to unpack some of the context. And I actually want to get into what we're looking at today, the, the power of the impact. So in John 4, it says, verse 1, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard about him making and baptizing more disciples than John, meaning John the Baptist, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, that's a key, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, and he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar, near the property of Jacob that was given to Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. A woman of Samaria came here to draw water. She said, he looks at her says, Give me a drink, because the disciples had gone into the town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews have no association, no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus responds, verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and the one who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would not have asked him for a drink. And he would have given you water that would lead unto everlasting life. Now, let me, let me kind of help you contextually understand how different and counterculture this entire picture is. First of all, uh, if you were to read this from the, the New King James, it said that Jesus responds with, I must need go to Samaria. Well, if we were looking at a map, you'd see Judea was to the south, Galilee to the north, between the two was Samaria. To the west is water, to the east is mountains. And so you have this picture of Samaria being the fastest route from point A to point B. However, that's not why Jesus takes it. Samaria, historically, this, is, this became the northern kingdom, this is a, a place that has become deeply disdained by all Jews. In fact, if a Jew was to travel from Galilee to Judea, north to south, or in this case, south to north, they would choose the mountain range to the east. And they would add a week to their journey just to avoid Samaria altogether. They can't go west because they'd be swimming. They would go around because they disdained Samaritans so much. In their world, Gentiles were dogs. In their world, Samaritans were worse. These are intermarried half-breeds. And so to them, they hated Samaritans because Samaritans worshipped the very God they did. But because they were not pure-blooded Jew, they they were intermarried with Gentiles they considered them lower than Gentiles because not only were they, they were people who had Gentile blood who didn't know any better, they were those who had Gentile blood who still worshiped the one true God they did. They were hoping for a Messiah as well. And they could not stand that Samaritans or Gentiles would practice as they did. Now, the other thing that she points out here is in saying you... How is it that you speak to me, a, Gentile, uh, a Samaritan woman? Because there are no dealings between Jews and Samaritans. When she points out woman, that's really key. Because no Jewish man would even talk to his wife in public. Women and men did not associate, they did not talk in public. A man would not even talk to his own mother in public, uh, any self-respecting Jew. So for a man to address a woman in public was already culturally not contextual. That didn't fit. That was a no-no. But for him to speak to a Samaritan woman, someone so disrespected by all Jews, and then we're going to find out for him to address such an unsavory character was taking his own reputation and putting it severely at risk, potentially to end his entire ministry. Now, what's led them to this point and why he had to get out of Judea was because it was not his time yet to die. He had come to bear our burden on the cross, but it was not time. And it says in the first verse that the Pharisees have found out that he's baptized more than John the Baptist. Though he himself's not baptizing, his disciples have. So what that means is his fame is spreading and he's already begun to spread the ministry out to the very disciples who will carry this ministry once he's gone. They'll become the apostles. And they've already begun to baptize and they're, they're helping other Jews recognize the Messiah has come. It's evident in Jesus. But Jesus says that I am compelled by an order larger than this world. I must need go through Samaria. And part of that reason is to engage this woman because he wants to offer her something, eternal life, that she's otherwise not going to be offered. But the second reason is this. He needed to teach his disciples not to be a respecter of persons. That the gospel was always intended to redeem all mankind unto himself. That we were all created in his image and he loved us. But they had been taught that Gentiles are dogs and Samaritans lower, so they would have never interacted with Samaritans. So they get out of Judea because his ministry is at risk and they must need go through Samaria because Jesus has to show his disciples a really important life a life lesson. There's teaching to be done here and he takes them in and he says this, boys, what I need you to do is go into the city. I want you to go in and I want you to buy some lunch and bring it back to me. What he just asked them to do was something they'd never done. He just asked them to go into a place in Sikar in Samaria, and to take their hard-earned Jewish money, which, by the way, they took nothing with them to follow Jesus' disciples. Everything they've earned, they got after following Him. Along the way, people contributed to the ministry. And, by the way, listen, here's the best part. They let Judas, the known thief, be the one who was in charge of the money. Jesus said, Judas, it's yours. You take care of the money bag. And so... These men have been asked by Jesus to go into a Samaritan city, which is about a mile and a half down the hill from the well. And we want you to go in and not only interact with Samaritans, I want you to barter, I want you to get the best deal you possibly can in the Samaritan marketplace. I want you to take your hard-end Jewish money, and I want you to give it to a Samaritan business owner. I want you to bless the Samaritan businesses of this marketplace by buying Samaritan food and then bringing it back to me and we're going to eat that Samaritan food. That food that was fostered and cleaned and handled by Samaritan hands. I want your money to exchange into Samaritan hands. I want you to get beyond your ethnical. I want you to get past your racial barriers. I want you to get past all these things that culturally you've been taught are wrong and I want you to see people the way that I see people. I need my disciples to understand this first and foremost. And so Jesus sends these boys in and while they are gone, he engages in a conversation that puts his entire reputation at risk with this woman. And as she comes, uh, their conversation goes further. He's the one that, remember, engages her. Give me a drink. She says, how is it that you, being a man, being a Jewish man, would speak to me a Samaritan? Now, that was a problem, but when I said that she was unsavory, you'll know it because it says it was noon. Any, All the women of this village would have been disciplined and they would have been communal. That means that they would have either the night before or before the sun broke come together to this well where they drew water. They needed it. It was a deep well, by the way. She points that out, about 100 feet it was expected. A deep well where they would come and they would draw water. And they would draw water before the sun broke so that they could do their daily chores, breakfast, laundry, etc. So they'd either go the night before or the morning thereof before day broke. For her to come at noon by herself says something. It's expelling something to to Jesus, expels it to the very disciples who passed her on the way in. And it's expelling this. That she has been outcast by her society and she's no longer accepted. She's been rejected by the fellowship of the women of this community. This village no longer lets her come together. These women would have done this together because those water pots would be very heavy. And they would share that burden as they brought it back into the day. But she would have to go daily alone. Humiliated in the heat of the day by herself Every step through the city, hearing the close of shutters as she passes each house because she is the outcast of her society. It says here in verse 13, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks from this water of this well will thirst again. Whoever drinks in the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I will give him will come, become unto him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water that I won't get thirsty nor have to come here again. That statement gets far too overlooked. I want you to understand the power of what she's saying here. Give me this water that I won't have to make this humiliating walk by myself any longer in the middle of the day with all their sneers, with all their rejection, with all of them judging me, looking down their nose at me. Please give me this water so that I don't have to go through this anymore. I am daily reminded about my mistakes. How many of you want to live with that? Daily reminded for the mistakes that you've made and the burden and the plight that you've earned in life. Please give me this water that I don't have to come back here. Jesus takes what she understands as a necessity, a needed element for her life to continue and he uses it as an opportunity to teach her about what she really needs. And that's forgiveness. That's value. That's acceptance. She turns and says, please give me this water because I can't take this anymore. And he looks at her and the first thing out of his mouth is the very thing that earned her this plight. How many of you, ever, how many of you when you are broken hearted and you look at someone and they say to you the very thing that cursed you and set you here. He... Uh, She says, give me this water, please. I can't take it anymore. He goes, go call your husband. Just just so you know that I know what got you this reputation. Just so you know that I know the humiliation and what it is you actually carry. I'm going to speak directly to it. Go call your husband. She says, well, I have no husband. He said, yes, absolutely. You've been honest. What you said is true. You have no husband. You've had five. And the guy you live with now is not your husband. Because you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. And you're desperate to be accepted. You're desperate to know that you're valued. And I want you to know a Jew who has no dealings with Samaritans. I want you to know a man talks to you, a woman, in public. I want you to know a man who understands exactly what's earned you this plight. And I will say it to you out loud just so you know I'm not just being gracious. I'm being overly gracious. I know who you are. I know why you've been rejected. And I want you to know none of that has stopped me from asking you for a drink of water. You matter to me. Your life is valuable to me. You're the reason I was compelled to come here. I need to see you receive life and I need my disciples to witness that. So he says this, go call your husband. She says, I I, I have no husband. You said, right. She says, sir, I I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews say that we are to worship in a place in Jerusalem. Jesus tells her in verse 21, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when neither worship the Father here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know, while we worship what we do. Because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Very important statement. Here it is. Verse 25. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. And when He does, He will explain everything to us. Jesus turns. For the first time in His ministry, and says out loud to not his disciples, not to other Jewish men or women, but to a Samaritan who has earned the, the title and reputation of a harlot in a city that is banned by most Jews. And he looks at her and says, the one you look for is here. I am he. Jesus reveals himself as Messiah to the most unlikely of characters before he tells even his own disciples. In fact, to this point, he's looked at and said, hey, tell no one that the Spirit has made you aware that I'm him. Here, he says it out loud. He chooses to tell this person who has been so rejected and outcast by all of mankind that he loves her so much, I'm going to put my own reputation at risk and I'm going to tell you something that you've been looking for Not only only did a man who is Jewish engage you, the Messiah of all mankind has engaged you. The one who was promised by God has engaged you. The first point I want to make today, and I I think it's a really important one for us to grab, is this. He is saying this, and I, I, I want to read this before I give you this point. Here it is. In verse 27, these words are very important. Just then his disciples arrived. And they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Here's your first point. (laughs) If we are going to make disciples of Jesus, we have to become learners of Jesus' ways ourselves. They were amazed to witness him talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. They would have figured out if a woman was coming at noon by herself, she had a reputation that had outcast her from the very disciplined and communal fellowship of the women that would have gone in the night. This was uncommon. So they're looking at this and going, why is he talking to this woman? Why is he talking to this woman specifically? Why would he do this? If we just fled Judea because it wasn't time for him to give his life, why is he putting us all at risk right here? Why is he taking his ministry and throwing it all away on this harlot? Why would he do this to us? And the disciples have just come out of the city, probably talking to one another, a little confused already. Why did Jesus just send us in to benefit Samaritans, those who were lower than the dogs? Why would he take money that was given to our ministry to advance the gospel, to let the Jews know that the Messiah had come? Why would he do this and, and waste it? Why would he waste it on those who are lower than dogs? And now he's... He's put himself at risk by talking to one of them outside here in public. What is he doing? It says this, though. They said nothing. They're thinking to themselves, what is he doing? But they say nothing. Why? Because they're learning their disciples and their rabbi has told them to go into the city and they cannot disobey an order from the rabbi. And when their rabbi engages someone who's unsavory, they don't question him about that. They're there to learn. How many of you want to follow God into the very uh, pronounced, provident, perfect will that He has for your life? How many of you want to know precisely where God has you, desires you? Here it is. Submitting to Jesus entirely will lead us to the center of God's will for us. And it is always perfect. Yet it is rarely and often is not safe. Let me say that again. Sometimes it's anything but safe to follow God into his perfect will. Jesus was completely surrendered to the Father and was compelled to go where he was sent without debate. As disciples, we have to learn this truth in order to give it away to someone else. We have to be willing to follow Jesus' example and it means following even to the most uncomfortable of places despite our education, our preferences, our cultural biases to all ends of the earth. Jesus is no respecter of persons and there's no room in his church, those who claim to be disciples of his, to be... Come, respecters of persons as well. He loves all and expects his disciples to do the same. Listen, Jesus asked us and set us apart when he said in Matthew 5 that we are to love even our enemy. That we are to bless those who curse us, serve and love those who hate us, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Pray that God would bless them and shower them with blessing and favor. That is dangerous. That is dangerous. How many going recognize that the person in your office who wants to get one over on you, God has called you to not only be in their life, but to pray for them, serve them, and love them? Those who are the hardest to love, God said, love them. He said, if you do not this, you're no different than the scourge of our society. And he's not pointing to the Samaritan woman. He says, you're no different than the scourge of our society, the tax collector, the ones who sold us out. If you love those who are simply like you, look like you, act like you, sound like you, people that you in fact like, if you love only them, you're no different than the scourge. I've called you to something greater. I've called you to dangerous living. I've called you to take the kingdom by force. I've called you to love even your enemy. And if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we must become learners of Jesus' ways ourselves. He put himself at risk. His reputation, everything in his ministry was on the line the moment he engaged this woman. Verse 28, then the woman left her water jar. Listen to this. She drops her water jar and goes running into the city to tell the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Now listen to this. Those who would not engage her, those who would cast her out, those who shut their doors as she passed, those who would close their shutters just so she would not see them glancing, those who didn't let her come get water with the rest of the the fellowship of the women, come see a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Verse 30, they left the town and made their way to him. What? 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 Just hours ago, this woman was so hated by everyone that they would not, that she was not even engaged. She wasn't involved. She was not a part, ultimately, of the village. But now she comes, her countenance is entirely changed. Something about her is so different that the men and the women of the town listen to what he is saying, or what she's saying. And it says... They left the town and made their way to him, following. Now, here's the best part. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Disciples said to one another, Someone have brought him food and something to eat? We didn't see that. Did she bring him food? What, what? Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work jesus told them don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest they're entering summer and he's saying look don't say to yourselves it's going to be september october before the harvest comes turn and look it says listen to what i'm telling you right here now open your eyes look at the fields because they are ready for harvest New King James Version says here that the fields are white for harvest. I want you to understand what he is taking is the analogy of a cotton plant, and their understanding of how that would burst into, uh, burst out of that decrepit old plant, if you've ever seen a cotton plant, and it becomes white and blooms. There is a well 100 feet deep, a mile and a half outside the city of Sakkar, on a hill. As these men come following her out of the city, Jesus says, look, like like cotton in bloom, white turbans begin to pop up over that hillside. And he says, look, the field is white for harvest. And he's pointing to all the Samaritans coming out of the city to hear from the Messiah and to hear of the one who loves even when... He understands and knows all that we have done to earn our plight in life. He looks at his disciples and says, Look, this gospel, this message of the Messiah goes beyond just the Jews. It's from the Jews, but it's for the world. And historically, you were given a law system that set you apart from everyone. But it wasn't for arrogance. It was so that you could point the entire world broken and Gentiles know they're broken Point them to the one true God. Because you couldn't, I'm here. And because I called you, you're mine. And because you are a disciple and I'm rabbi, you have no choice. Turn and look. You must learn this. It's very important. These people are just as valuable even though you've been taught something entirely different. I just led the worst of them to trust me. And now look at them. They're all following her. Point two. This complete submission yielded to life change and it yielded to contentment. Jesus was completely submitted to the Father to the place where he is not only teaching about life change in the Samaritan woman and showing that to his disciples when they ask, Hey, Rabbi, eat, please eat. We love you, eat. He's going, look, I'm contented. I'm content to complete the work of the one who sent me. And I'm not gonna be fulfilled until that's done. And right now, a life has just changed. We've seen someone called out of the grave just a moment ago. Someone moved from death to life. And that is fulfillment enough for me. I don't need bread and water. But I need every word that professes from the mouth of God. I'm contented. I need you to see that it's harvest time. Get ready. He was contented due to the obedience that he had committed unto the Father. I am full because I have food that you don't know about. He was contented for how he witnessed this woman's life change right before him because she who looked for love in all the wrong places knew that she was deeply valued and loved by the truth of the one who took a risk on her. No one had ever risked for her like that. And it made her want to risk it. She drops her water, the thing that brought her out to the well, and she runs into the city. And she puts herself before the people, the very people who had rejected her, who had outcast her, who otherwise would never have dealings with her, even though they too were Samaritan. It led them, because of her boldness, because of her bravery, because of her countenance changing, it led them to listen. Point three. Point three. And this life change led to new disciples. Life change leads to more disciples. She runs back into the city to tell everyone that it cast her out. And Jesus takes that opportunity and points to the bigger picture. He looks at their life and he says, you are only Okay, operating in what you consider is safe, what you have considered by the teaching of the law and by your own, I guess, preferences, and that's leading you to miss an entire world that needs to know it's valued. Let me ask you this: How many of you deal in the deal only in the parameters of preference, your preference? How many of us have a tendency to only go where we feel it's comfortable? And we have a tendency to not risk anything. But we say the gospel changes lives. See, Jesus had challenged these men to, to begin to consider. To begin to consider that it may put your reputation, it may put your life at risk. In fact, in Acts 1.8, when he looked at his apostles... And the very last words he gave his church before he sent it to be with the Father was this, you'll be my martyrs. And every single one of those men, except for one, paid with their lives to advance the gospel. They spilt their blood just like he did. And, and the New Testament, listen, it's very intense because the entire New Testament, the letters that were written there were paved in their blood. It's not something we should take lightly whatsoever. The only one that survived it all Was boiled alive in Rome and lived to tell about it. And that was the youngest, John. To be in the center of God's will may put you in the most dangerous places on this planet. But are you, his disciple, going to lead others to love him because you've been commanded to? There is no debate. Are we willing to step up and go where others may be unwilling? Are we willing to step up and love when the rest of the world isn't? Because this is the expectation of our God. That we love Him with awe, without debate, love others as He intended, and will go wherever He sends us. You see, because when this happens, when Jesus was willing to risk it and get His disciples to understand this is what He expected... An entire community changed. A community whose trajectory was only death and destruction because no Jew would have ever witnessed to them or gone to them. Was now set on a completely new trajectory because Jesus embraced the opportunity to have a conversation with a stranger. Church, there are strangers, friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, even enemies all around us whom God expects us to love. And they need to hear the message of hope just as the Samaritan woman heard. And that begins with a conversation. It begins with us being willing to be a blessing. It begins with you and I being willing to be a blessing even unto our enemy. I'm going to do something here just so it's memorable. I'm going to take the word blessed. I want to use it as an acronym. Maybe you've heard this before. But B says it begins with prayer. And prayer is less about you talking and more about you listening. If we'll begin our day with prayer every morning and ask God to lead our days, direct our thoughts, guide our steps, then He'll bring into our life opportunities to see people the way that He does and offer them the very hope that we have. But we've got to be willing to listen to Him first. We're going to be able to put down... Every day our flesh. He says, you cannot otherwise be my disciple unless you take up your cross and follow me. Daily crucifying your preferences, crucifying your flesh, crucifying your comforts, crucifying the things that keep you in a box. And allow yourself to be led outside this parameter to see people, even your enemy, the way that I see them is valuable. And then when you engage your even enemy stranger, neighbor, whomever it is, because you are to love your neighbor and that wasn't given a parameter. That was whoever. You need to listen to them. How many of you are good listeners? Husbands, don't raise your hands. How many of you listen to the hurt, the lies, and the plight of those in your life who are without him? Sure, it's probably covered up with a lot of conversation that tells you how great they are because they desperately want you to know how important they are and how valued they are. Sure, it's probably covered with a ton of bragging, but how many of you know that all that bragging and all of that, you know, ability to see themselves in their own eyes as a hero is only covering the pain and the hurt and the rejection that's evident? because they don't believe they're valued. Listen. Next, eat. I know it sounds weird, but listen. When we break bread, spiritual walls start to come down. Here, Jesus used what she understood, a physical need, water, and he asked for a drink. Because he was willing to take what she understood in the physical realm and he was willing to share a drink with her of water, she began to listen a ton of cultural biases started to come down. How many of you have ever gone to another country, gone into the ghetto, and you've had a meal? It's completely outside the realm of what we're used to, but we go in and we break bread. And listen to me. Walls begin to come down because you're sharing at a real common level something that we all need. And you're not saying in said meal that I'm better than anyone else. Jesus was saying, I'm not better than you because I'm Jewish. I'm not better than you because I'm a man. Listen, I love you and though you're a female harlot who's been rejected by the entire world, you matter to me. Let's drink. We've got to be willing to serve. He said it, that we would love even those who hate us. Come alongside those who even are enemy." And lift their arms. Lift their burden. Be willing to love them like no one else would. And then join His story by being willing to share ours. How many of you have a story to tell of how God changed your life? Took you from death to life? How many of you are grateful for the cross? Uh, That doesn't sound very grateful. If that's your gratitude, I will stay in death, please. Thank you. Your enemy who's not heard your story, your neighbor who does not know the life change that's happened in you will continue to stay in death when we do not share our story and how we have been used and utilized to join the story of God redeeming mankind. We must share our story because it was a part of his. I love this verse. Check it out. It says here. The verse 39. Now the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and they stared there two days. Verse 41, many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves. And you know this is the, really the savior of the world. Listen, here it is. His church, unwilling to share his story, offers nothing. His church, unwilling to become learners of his ways, offers nothing. His church, unwilling to go to the darkest of Peru, the darkest of places where the gospel doesn't exist, even if that is across the street or across your cubicle, to your enemy. Our unwillingness to do that does not advance the gospel. We must be willing to go wherever he leads, be learners of his ways, practice those, and share with those that even, even might be rejected, listen, by us. Have you rejected anybody? Life change, your story, joining his story, leads to disciples. Disciples. They'll come because of your testimony. They'll come because of our word, but they'll be changed because of His. They'll come because of your story, joining His story, your life change, being pronounced, your countenance changing, your willingness to love beyond boundary, beyond barrier. Your life on display as an act of the gospel will bring them, but they'll be changed by His story. In his message alone, just like it changed you, just like it changed me.